morning, church. My name is Jason Windsor. I have the honor and pleasure. Oh, thank you, Mom. Appreciate that. <laughs> Obviously, you guys didn't get the email that anybody that cheers for me gets $5 at the end of the service. That's your loss. Your loss. No, the, past, the moment's passed. Moment's passed. You're on your own now. Uh, but I have the honor and privilege of being one of the student pastors here at the Mount. I want to welcome those of you that braved the sub-freezing temperatures to get in here so you could be slightly warmer in this auditorium. Uh, and I want to welcome those of you that are joining us. I, imagine, I always imagine, for some reason, the online audience, like, sipping hot cocoa in robes, like, underneath blankets. That's how I imagine you guys. It's probably not the case, but in my mind, that you look very comfortable right now in my mind. Uh, we're very excited that we get together every Sunday, but especially this Sunday, because I'm sure that several of you on your way in got this blue book, affectionately titled The Blueprint. It's going to be our next six weeks where we study the letter of Ephesians. If you'll open the book, you'll see that each of the, the days are marked and the weeks are marked, and you'll see that they each follow a similar feature. There's a scripture for, for reading, then there's a reflection paragraph, and then there's prompts for prayer, and then there's reflect, reflection questions. Easy for me to say. Reflection questions. These are just you work through at your own pace, in your own time, with the goal of connecting to our loving Father. This is not something else to add to your holy checklist. You're not good if you got it done and bad if you didn't. I promise you this is something to connect because we don't want to just connect with our Father on Sunday mornings in a group setting, right? Guys, if all you ever did was date your wife with like 300 other people around, she wouldn't be your wife. Eventually, you have to get alone, you have to get some time, you have to deepen that connection, and that's what we're looking to do. This is our group date. And then throughout the week, we're going to date individually as well to deepen that connection, to be more intimate, because that's the pursuit of the Father. That's what he wants for us. I say this, and you guys will hear me say this till the day I die, the greatest spiritual revelations that God will deliver to you will come when you are alone with him. That way, I don't get to take credit for him. Nobody that stands up here gets to take credit for him. None of your counselors get to take credit for him. And instead of going, wow, that counselor was amazingly smart, you go, wow, God is amazingly smart. So that's why we get alone time with God, and that's why this book exists. And another reason this book exists is because there are literally thousands of voices speaking into our lives on any given day. This is a reality in the year 2022, is that we cannot escape it. Voices telling us who we are, voices telling us who we ought to be, voices telling us how we need to change, what we need to do. There is an uncountable sea of voices speaking into our lives, and we believe that one of them, at least one of them, should be a biblical voice. Even if you hear the information and reject it and say, I don't think Jesus is who he says he is, I don't think scripture is truth, you should at least, out of intellectual responsibility, give scripture a fair hearing. So whether you choose to follow Jesus or not, you do so with the best information possible. So we study the Bible to be a biblical voice in a sea of non-biblical voices competing for our hearts and minds. And this is why Paul wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago. And it's as relevant to us as it was to them. And one of the features of this letter that I always find very wise is that he doesn't get to the how-to part 
or he doesn't get to the how we should behave or what she would look like or how we should act until chapter four. He spends over half of the letter talking about who God is, what God has done for us, and who we are in light of that. Because Paul knows that true change comes from identity. I was having a conversation with my son in our kitchen a couple weeks ago. He works out at one of the local gyms. And I was asking him, are you gonna get a workout in today? And he's like, no, I'm not going today. It's way too crowded out there. He says, it's January, Dad. That's what he said. The unspoken truth that gyms are crowded in January. Gyms know this. That's why they're running all the deals this month, baby. Right? And so he says, I I do the dad thing. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, son, like it disappears twice as fast as it gains, you know. And I'm like doing the dad thing, trying to get him to go to the gym. And he's like, dad, I'll go. Dad, by the middle of February, it'll be back to normal. I'll be going every day again. My 17-year-old son has captured on the very fundamental truth that change is hard, that change is difficult. There's a reason gyms are packed in January and back to normal by February is because true change involves the mind and the heart, not just the hands and the feet. We can only white-knuckle it. We can only pretend for so long. And so if we are going to be who we say we are, we're going to have, a, to have a fundamental change in our identity. And this is what Paul was after. This is why he waits till chapter four to tell us how to behave. If he leads with that, he's just creating a bunch of posers, not followers of Jesus Christ. He's, he's putting out a bunch of things that people can follow to look like followers of Jesus Christ instead of actually fundamentally engaging our hearts and minds and being who it is that we say we are. And he starts, we're gonna start, he starts obviously in chapter one with what God has done, but we're gonna start in chapter two, verse one, where he reminds us of our old identity. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. That's a fancy way of saying you were spiritually dead because you separated yourself from Jesus Christ when you did the wrong things that you have done. When you rebelled against God, you walked away from him, effectively creating separation, and this was a fundamental aspect of your identity. He continues and said, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving for our wrath, of, our, of wrath. He says, look, the battle for hearts and minds is spiritual. We were at one time following different motivations. You and I love to think that we are creatures of logic. We love to think we're far more intelligent than what we are. We love to think that information changes behavior when all of the evidence is contrary to that belief. Every single one of us has done something that we knew to be wrong and walked headlong and chose it anyway. Information did not keep us on the correct path. All of us have put off a task we know we should have been working on, and why did we put, on that ta- put off that task? Because we really wanted to do something else. Parents, you know this truth acutely. Acutely. 
you know that we are creatures of desire. Because when your children do something completely off the wall and you ask them, and I don't know as parents why we ask this question, why did you do that? We never get, well, Father, I weighed the pros and cons. I made a sheet. Then I sought out experts in the field. And I asked them, how did you go about this when you did it? And then I sat and prayed about it for 10 minutes. And then I did it. We never get that. We always get one of two answers, and usually we get this one first. I don't know. I don't know. Which is either true or covering up the real answer, which we get if we care enough to dig. Because we, we've, we've rolled this carousel enough times to be when the I don't know comes, we just go, all right, let's clean it up. I don't know turns into I wanted to. That's what it is. I wanted to. What was your motivation in this? I wanted to. I would say the vast majority of us do everything we do because I wanted to, and I know there's some 15-year-old sophomore going, no, I don't want to go to school. And I said, you, I get that. You don't want to go to school, but you choose to go to school because you really don't want what happens if you cut school, <laughs> right? So even when we don't want to do something, if we dig a little bit deeper, we find there was a reason that we did it anyway, and that reason is almost never logic. We are fundamentally creatures of desire. And so if we are to live out the life that God has for us, we will have to be transformed with our minds and our hearts engaged in this transformation. It is a radical identity shift. And we see that in here when he says, all of us at one time have lived disobediently. This is a condition that is common to the expanse of humanity. There is no one, according to these scriptures, he says, all and like the rest, everyone is in the boat that at one time our desires drove us away from God, and he uses a word we don't like right there. He says, deserving of wrath. We pastors don't like to talk about wrath. It tends to make you guys not like us very much. We avoid that one, which is why I love line-by-line -line preaching. Because if you're going to go line by line, you can't dodge words like wrath. He says right there, because we separated ourselves from him, because we walked away, we are deserving of wrath. And that's a tough concept for people to get behind. What we fail to understand is how much God loves us. He loves us in a way that defies comparison, and we are his children. God loves his kids. He says in one passage of scripture, it is better for someone to have a giant rock tied around their neck and thrown into a body of water than it is for you to hurt one of his kids. But somehow you and I have made an art form out of hurting each other, and we are his kids. God is not a real big fan of this. And since you and I have wounded each other, since we have hurt each other, since we have caused each other to lose faith, sometimes in God, sometimes I can sin against you so badly that it not only affects our relationship, it affects your relationship with God. He doesn't like that. And he cannot be a God of justice and not punish that. 
Justice requires that you and I are held accountable for hurting each other. And the level of accountability, because the crime is so significant, we like to think of, well, I did a couple bad things. You're right, I took that Hot Wheels when I was seven. No, you have hurt people in the past, you will hurt people today, and you will hurt them in the future, both willfully and ignorantly. And you and I stand correctly under God's wrath because of the wrong that we have done. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul says that selfishness and that wrath was our old identity. He says our new identity is life and our new identity is blessed. Where once we were separated, we are now the blessed. And that is a gigantic shift in identity. From wrath to blessed, there could not be two more different terms. This is a radical shift in identity, and we're going to jump back to the top of Ephesians in verse 3, where he picks it up saying, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He says, praise to God that we don't have to live out of that old identity anymore. Praise to God that we are blessed, because now we are no longer defined by what we lack we are now defined by what we have been given. We are no longer subject and slave to our desires. We now have a spirit of love, we have a spirit of power, and we have a spirit of self-control. This is our new identity. He continues and says we are adopted in the subsequent verses. We're now part of a family. That's the language of our Bible. Sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, father. And I know for some, the image of family doesn't conjure up very comforting terms. The image of family might not comfort you in this time because your, your family has been a source of pain and not of pride. But this father operates differently. This father gives forgiveness for wrongdoings. This father gives grace for those who have gone. This father protects his kids with a furious passion like a roaring lion. This father loved you and I so much that he left perfect heaven at no benefit to him and at all benefit to us, came down here, was tortured, ultimately murdered on the off chance that you and I might say, I believe that he is who he says he is, and allow him to adopt us as his children. There is no more furious, passionate, powerful presence on this planet than the love of our Father. And that is our identity as the blessed. He continues in verse 13, he says, when you believed, when you believed, when you acknowledged that you had done wrong and your wrong separated you from Jesus Christ and you said, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe that he came down, that he chose the cross, that he was buried and that he rose again on the chance that I could know him. When you do that, you are marked in him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You are marked as a son or daughter by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And like we talked about two weeks ago, this is a significant statement because the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. We no longer have to question, what does God want from me? We no longer have to question whose I am because the Spirit directly delivers the truth from God's mouth to our hearts and minds and we have a choice to accept it or to reject that truth, but now we have a direct line of communication with the truth of who we are and who our identity is. We can know the mind of God because we are the temple of the living God. We know we are his, we know we've been adopted, we know that our inheritance is eternal life because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and he communicates both to God and to us on each other's behalf, telling us who God is, what he's done, and who we are in light of that. And because we have the Holy Spirit, our inheritance is sure in him. Paul prays for these guys. He says, for this reason, because you are my brothers and sisters, because we're gonna spend eternity with each other and because we have the same father, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Man, I hope somebody prays that over me this week. You guys pray that for me. Pray that for each other this week. He prays that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would deliver the knowledge of God that we could know him better. He could have prayed for anything right there. This church is about 10 years old when he writes this letter. He could have prayed, hey, I know you're living in the heart of persecution. I pray that you stand strong. He could have prayed, hey, I hope that you guys hold fast to what I taught. He could have prayed, I hope you guys are growing, right? Like we pray for that a lot, right? Like the more people come to the faith. He could have prayed that they had enough money to do ministry. He could have prayed that they were safe. He could have prayed for obedient children. He could have prayed for anything. But he prays that they would know God. He prays for intimacy, He prays that I hope you don't just know facts. I hope you don't know about God. I hope through revelation you know God. And there's a big difference there. Sometimes when we know things about people, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're in relationship with them. We can fool ourselves into thinking because I know your birthday and because I know your middle name, We're in relationship, and that might be true, or you might just be a stalker. (laughs) He prays for intimacy, because intimacy is the cure for doubt and inconsistency in relationships. There are times where you say, I go with that person because I trust them because they have shown me who they are, because they have shown me what they're about, and I don't care what you say about them, I know them, and I go with him or her. The sad fact is that the vast majority of our relationships are transactional, not intimate. They're based on some quid pro quo. 
All business relationships take this on. Your vendors, you might love them, but eventually if they stop selling you what they're selling, the phone stops ringing. You bought a smoothie. You're not attached to that cashier for life. He or she gave you the smoothie, you gave them the money, relationship's over till you go back. It's transactional, but, but it doesn't just stay in business. I think of the kids that all sit together at the same lunch table, not because they're friends. They don't want to sit alone. I think of the neighbors that we shared a cul-de-sac with. We had a shared interest in keeping the cul-de-sac safe and pretty, but when they moved away, we don't really talk anymore. It's a transactional relationship. It gets deeper than that, too. Most of our romantic relationships are not intimate if we're going to use the term properly because we enter them like morons. We create this list where we're like, man, I hope he makes me smile. Man, I hope she makes me laugh. I hope he does this. I hope she does this. I hope he does this. I hope she does this. And then we go in the relationship, and then we find out, wait a minute, this person isn't giving me the bliss that all the Hallmark movies desired. (laughs) What is this? This person is not fulfilling their end of the bargain. I have the bargain clearly spelled out. Here's the list. Perhaps we should spend more time working on the list of what we want to bring into the relationship than what we're planning on getting out of it. Because my friends, the baggage you bring into the relationship is the baggage you brought. (laughs) What you brought to the party stays at the party. Let's make that not transactional. And this is is Paul's prayer. Because he knows that if our relationship with Jesus Christ is transactional, it will end. The second he doesn't deliver what he thinks, what you think he promised, and we do a bad job as this as pastors sometime, come to Jesus and you'll never be lonely. Come to Jesus and whatever, fill in the blank, your problem will be fixed. Maybe, maybe not. When you come to Jesus, the problem that gets fixed is you're no longer separated from him, and that was the biggest problem to begin with. Everything else is added unto you. And that's why he prays for intimacy in this relationship, that we will hold fast to the greatest good that has ever happened to us. But that's not all he prays for. He picks it up in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He prays that as a result of this intimate relationship, we keep our eyes on the future and what he has promised, eternity with him. In another letter, Paul writes, these afflictions, these sufferings that we experience today are nothing in comparison with what waits for us in glory. He says, don't put your eyes down. Chase something that's not as good. Don't keep your eyes down and think when the suffering comes, God has abandoned me. He says, keep your eyes up and see what he has promised you as your inheritance. As sons and daughters of the living king, we have a rich and royal inheritance that will keep us tethered to a faith when everything down here doesn't seem to be working out. He says, I pray that you keep your eyes up on what has been promised, not down chasing things that'll end up in the bottom of a garbage can one day. He prays for something else as well. He says, I pray that you will see the incomparably great power for us who believe. 
The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything from the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. He says, I pray that you see God's great power. I pray that you see, and the best example I can give you, it's the power that raised him from the dead. He says, don't be subject to lesser powers. Don't you dare trade the greatest power in the universe for something lesser. Don't put your faith in those things. He said, this power took Christ from the grave and put him in charge of everything. Everything is at his feet. All creation is unified in him from death, from in the ground, to the Lord of heaven. No power can even claim to do one one millionth of that. Don't you dare trade resurrection power for some lesser power because you've got confused about something. He prays, I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and reveal himself to you. I pray that you would look into the future and see what he's promised you, and I pray that you would not forget who the most powerful creature in creation actually is. These are the three things that he prays for the church, and he prays those things so that we would hold fast. He prays those things so that we would put God in his rightful place as Lord of our lives as the greatest relationship that we have, as the number one priority. He prays that we don't get confused and let something else take his seat in our lives. And then when we let something else take his seat, get frustrated and leave the faith altogether. He wants this church to be God's forever. And he says, these are the things that I pray for you so that you're transformed, so that your identity keeps you tethered to the one who loves you the most. And we would be wise to listen. And the Ephesians would have been wise to listen as well. But we see in Revelation chapter two that they strayed. Verse one, chapter two in Revelation says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a lot of words to say these are the words of Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's a great report. If my kid came home with this on his report card, that's two thumbs up and dinner out. Like, that's good. We'll take all of that. If only it had stopped there. The author continues and says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Don't read that and think first love. This is not about the one that got away. This is not about the girl that would have changed your life or the boy that would have made you complete. This is the primary love. This is the target to which the arrow of your life is pointed. This is the filter 
through which you see the world. This is your first love. You have forsaken your first love, he writes. Consider how far you have fallen. Didn't they just get a great report? But in light of forsaking their first love, it's a great fall. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Scripture is very clear. Our number one priority as followers of Jesus Christ is to love God, our first love, the one who first loved us. Our love for God is in light of understanding what Paul described in chapter two, that we were created, fell away, and were under wrath. That we were slaves to our own desires with no hope of rejoining ourselves to Jesus Christ, but God, unwilling that this would be the final arrangement, allowed himself to be tortured and murdered on our behalf. We love God because he loves us. Both of the first 10 commandments, both of the 10 commandments, both of the first 10 commandments, there we go, third time's the charm. Both of the first 10 commandments can be summed up in two words, love God. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. We love to make this faith about things that it is not. We love to make it about the things that we do. We love to make it about the things that have been done to us. But this faith is always about God loved me and because he loved me, I love him. This is our first love. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to have a new identity with the Holy Spirit in you, temple of the living God, engaging your mind and a heart, not so that you're white-knuckling it at the gym all through January, but so you can experience radical life change through the power of the Holy Spirit that he just said in Ephesians chapter one is incomparable in power. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. He literally is the alpha and omega. He literally is the end. We want intimacy with Jesus Christ, not transaction. Many people that come in these doors and doors like these all around the world will come and eventually walk away because they came seeking something, but that something maybe wasn't God. They were seeking a better life or they were seeking a problem to be fixed. And eventually when that didn't work out, they walked right back out those doors. You will only stay tethered to this faith if you remember your first love. And Paul knows that. And that's why he prayed what he did. The truth is, when we lose our first love or when we forsake our first love, I'll just speak for me. When I forsake my first love, it's because I am my first love. 
And I know I've forsaken my first love when my interior monologue starts to play things like, why is that person ignoring you? Why is that person not giving you what you deserve? Why aren't these people respecting you? Why aren't these people doing what they ought to do? Why aren't they treating you with the respect you deserve? That's how I know when I've forgotten my first love. Because guess who also didn't get the respect he deserved? Jesus Christ. And guess who also had to lay down his rights for me? I know that I am my own first love when I am making all these things that happen to me about me. And then I remember through the power of the Holy Spirit that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when God is my first love, it helps me do all the other things that I need to do. For me, I don't know what your structure is because each of you have a different life, but God has clearly revealed to me the structure of my priorities. God first, wife second, kids third. It hasn't always been that way and it doesn't always work that way every day. I'm not giving you perfect Jason living out a perfect system. But I'm telling you that when God is number one, I do two and three a lot better. When God is number one, I'm a lot easier to be around. I laugh more. I'm less angry. I'm less bitter. I enjoy life more. And please don't hear life is better and think life is easier. The car still breaks down. People at work still make me mad. Not any of these people. The kids still disobey, the people still get sick, I still get bad service at restaurants, I still get all the little things that shouldn't matter, but they do, and then I still get all the big things that do matter. But the difference is that when the storm comes, it doesn't define me, because God's already taken that heavy lifting. He's already defined me, and as long as I remember who my first love is, I weather the storm of life so much more to the glory of God than when I don't. And I stay tethered to the one who gave his life for me. Never forget your first love. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that although we forget you consistently, you never forget us. We thank you that no matter what we do, we are never too far from your loving embrace to be drawn back in. And we pray over us the same thing that Paul did over the Ephesians, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and that we would know you, not facts about you, that we would connect with you and you would reveal to us your true natures in those moments in solitude that we can say, praise God, I am blessed that we live out our primary identity as sons and daughters of the living King, and we love you first and foremost so that all our other priorities are given meaning through the identity that you have graced us with, with your true mercy and compassion, no longer under wrath, but blessed and sons and daughters of the eternal kingdom. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and in God's name, amen.